2: You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, Bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So Please pick up a copy, and also I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m. Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me, and 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book— who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the at the front will be there and you can be there too And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by author Joe Piazza's new podcast, Under the Influence. Under the Influence is a deep dive into the mom internet, a place haunted by aspirational marketing where it feels like every other mom is a social media influencer trying to sell you something, all while posed in white kitchens that never seem to get messy with toddlers and cloth diapers that never ever leak, a bastion of carefully curated lives that are hashtag blessed. And behind this airbrushed perfection is money, so much money, billions and billions of dollars, a multi-billion dollar industry we never talk about. Journalist and mom of two, Joe Piazza, brings a keen reporter's lens to examine how we got here, what it all means, and how the commodification of motherhood is driving normal mothers to the brink. And through it all, she wonders if she should just join the ochre-hued ranks of the momstagrammers, if she too can make thousands of dollars off beautiful photos of bath time, frolicking in fields of purple flowers, and posing her newborn next to a beautiful latte, and if this is the future of content. Check it out. Joe Piazza is under the influence. Robert Jones Jr. is the author of The Prophets, a novel. He was born and raised in New York City and received his BFA in creative writing with honors and MFA in fiction from Brooklyn College. He has written for numerous publications, including The New York Times, The Paris Review, Essence, OK Africa, The Feminist Wire, and The Griot. He is the creator of the social justice community, Son of Baldwin and was featured in T Magazine's cover story, Black Male Writers of Our Time. The Prophets is his debut novel. Welcome, Robert. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your amazing, hugely successful, powerful book, The Prophets.
3: Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure.
2: <laughs> How are you doing with the success of this book? What do you think? What like Did you ever expect? Tell me about
3: it. I did not ever expect I actually expected the opposite, that people would either ignore it, find it far-fetched, be offended by the topics it broaches. I did not expect the success and the acclaim that it has experienced thus far. And it is so hard to internalize it because I had been so preparing myself for the bad or the negative that the positive surprised me, and I'm, I'm I think I'm still in a state of surprise, but ultimately grateful.
2: I like doing that too. So to prepare for the worst, and then everything is a pleasant surprise.
3: Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, for people who might not be familiar with the prophets or Son of Baldwin, for that matter, would you mind first just talking a little about what the prophets is about, and then why what inspired you to write it?
3: Oh, awesome. The prophets is about Samuel and Isaiah, two enslaved men on a plantation in Mississippi during the 1800s who are in love. And the book sort of examines how that love transforms, inspires, angers everyone around them, whether that be fellow enslaved people or the plantation owners and the family that owns these enslaved people. And it also, there's a thread in it that goes back to pre-colonial Africa to give a sort of a precursor to Samuel and Isaiah's love and an origin point for how long lasting and historical that sort of love is. And it is something that took me 14 years to write. Oh my God. Precisely because I could find no template to draw from. And that in all of my studies, I was an Africana studies minor in undergrad I could find no examples of Blackness and queerness prior to the Harlem Renaissance and wondered, where were they? Like, did they just pop up in 1929? Like, where were Black queer people? And found only references that sort of alluded to sexual assault or some sort of depravity. And my question was, what about love? And so because the great Toni Morrison said, if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it. I set about writing what would eventually become The Prophets. Wow.
2: 14 years and it's finally here. Yeah. Do you like ever get tempted to go back into the file on your computer and just keep tinkering around a little bit more? Or
3: You know, if it were not <laughs> for my agent and my editor, um, my agent PJ Mark at Janklor and Nesbitt and my editor Sally Kim at Putnam... I could have tinkered with this for another 14 years. (laughs) The writer almost never knows when it's done. You just revise and revise and revise because that's your training, is that writing is revision. And so you will keep revising until you have written 14 years worth of books. But they stopped me and said, okay, this is done it's, and we can, it's time. we can move forward. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I love Sally Kim, by the way. She is like one of my all-time favorite editors and she's amazing. So, so awesome. So also, Son of Baldwin, you've built this like enormous online community. And here's just a little thing about it for people who don't know, but I want to hear from you that Son of Baldwin is specifically interested in critical analysis and in leading and participating in conversations from the queer perspective, intersections of ability, age, body type, class, gender, gender identity, sex, sexuality, and others. Of course, this is now cut off. White supremacists, capitalist, patriarchy are considered. And then, of course, there's a lot more. So this is a big undertaking. Tell me about this.
3: Well, Son of Baldwin started when I was first introduced to James Baldwin. I'm late to the game. I did not really know about James Baldwin until my freshman year of college when I was assigned an essay by him called Here Be Dragons and was so blown away by the clarity and the brilliance and the, and the just beauty of that essay that I devoured and, and sought out all sorts of works by him and discovered that he was also Black, queer, raised in New York City, and a writer. All of the things that I am. And I adopted him immediately as my spiritual godfather. I was devastated to learn that he was dead because I was hoping to like find him and talk to him, but he was dead. And I said, shoot. And then I watched a a documentary where his brother said some of James Baldwin's last words were, I hope that someone finds me in the wreckage. Mm -hmm. And it broke my heart because I, I thought, why isn't he more popular? Why aren't we discussing his works more? And this was about 2006. And I said, I know what, I'm gonna start a blog and it's going to be centered around James Baldwin and all the things he talked about politically. So in about 2007, 2008, I created the Son of Baldwin blog, moved it to Facebook in 2009. And the rest is kind of history because just by word of mouth, people started participating and and it, the audience just grew and grew and grew into what it is now.
2: Wow. I read, though, James Baldwin in college and I graduated college in... 1998, not to date myself here, but I did a whole class on African-American literature and that was, it was, he was prominently featured. So anyway, it's, he's not like lost to history.
3: No, like
0: No, <laughs> it was, it
3: was, I just was wondering why he wasn't more popular. Cause at the time it was, we would talk about like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King True. Jr. And those were the big names. And I'm like, why isn't he that big? And obviously part of that reason is because the queerness always makes certain people uncomfortable. But lately, in the last maybe five to seven years, his memory, his work has really returned to form. So I'm really, really glad about that.
2: Isn't it amazing? I love what you just said about sort of finding a spiritual godfather Mm -hmm. and that there are all these people who have come before us and who are out there now who maybe we just wouldn't have heard about or don't cross paths with, but then it somehow like validates our entire lives, whether there's something about them that's similar or a a sensibility or something. And it's just like, wow, like I am not the only one like me in the world, and how amazing is that?
3: That is what drove me utterly, was he confirmed my right to be. And so all, I bow down to James Baldwin. I I adore him still, and he has a, a huge influence on my thinking and my writing.
2: So when you were writing fiction, how did you even start to attempt this project? Because this book is amazing in that it has like different dialect is the wrong word, but you have like different speaking styles for different characters. You have different like first person, third person. There's like some that feels biblical. There's some parts that feel... It's a lot of different tones and speakers all sort of interwoven to create this masterpiece, essentially, of different threads. So how did you even, how did you like sit down one day and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, I'll just start this thing. Well, <laughs> what preceded it? Well,
3: you know, I, my first semester of grad school in the MFA program at Brooklyn College, Stacey Durasmo was my fiction tutorial instructor and she gave us a project. She said, it is your job to go out into the world and find objects, a character that you're thinking about would possess.
2: Hmm. That's so interesting. And okay.
3: Because serendipity is real. <laughs> I found a pair of shackles in the garbage on the street in Brooklyn.
2: Stuff. Seriously?
3: A pair of shackles. And when I lifted them up, they were heavy and I said, "Oh, this person is enslaved. Oh my goodness, I am going to have to write about a black queer character in antebellum slavery when there is no template for that, but this is my sign." That that I'm supposed to be doing this. So I set about sketching who the character who would have been held by these shackles was. That character eventually became Samuel, one of the the main characters. So I just basically sketched out what he looked like, what he smelled like, what he liked, what he disliked, who he loved, what he thought about, all of those sorts of things to kind of build him into a person. And then I went about writing the book, which was initially going to be told solely from Samuel's point of view. But then I realized that Samuel didn't have enough information to to really span the breadth of what I wanted to discuss in this book. So I said, "Okay, maybe Samuel and his love interest, Isaiah, will tell the story together. And then I said, no, that's still not enough. I, I need something broader. Then I realized the center and the heart of the story was actually that Samuel and Isaiah were in love. So that love needed witnesses. And from that epiphany, I said, okay, so now these other voices are going to need to speak. Whether they affirm this love or they wanna destroy it, they need to be able to tell their point of view. And then from a dream that I wrote, scribbled down some words in the middle of the night, the ancestors spoke. They said, you do not yet know us.
1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hey, grown ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcasts. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
3: Just want to be able to talk to me. They want to be able to talk to these characters and they want to talk to the reader, too. I have to now incorporate them in. And then they led me across the Atlantic to pre-colonial Africa to talk about the precursor to Samuel and Isaiah. And I thought, how am I gonna work to get all of these disparate pieces to work cohesively? And thanks to the help of Sally Kim and PJ Mark, we were able to sort of make it congeal. (laughs)
2: Wow. That is quite a story. Oh my gosh. I can't believe you found those on the street. I mean, it almost has this Greek chorus to it, right? Have you heard that a lot? I'm sorry.
3: No, no, it's (laughs) totally that. It is totally has that Greek chorus. In my mind, I'm thinking of how Black women in church often sing gospel in harmony. And that is kind of how I hear the voices of those ancestral interjections as a... Mm -hmm harmonious gospel sort of tone, but with West African tenor, (laughs) if that makes any sense.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And did you do any travel? Like, did you go back to anywhere to investigate in Africa or anything like
3: that? I had the great fortune of having visited Africa before. So I just retrieved those memories of what it was like to be there, what the air smelled like, what the people looked like, what the camaraderie felt like. It felt like a homecoming, like mm-hmm. that was the place that I actually belonged, like like I belonged to that landscape. And I took that feeling and tried to interpret it in a literary fashion.
2: Wow. Very cool. Oh my gosh. A lot of the scenes in this book, I have to say, were very tough to read in terms of the graphic nature of the torture and depravity and just awful. It it was just like, I wanted to close my eyes at certain scenes, which is tough when you're reading, right? (laughs) What was it like to write scenes like that? Like, was that hard for you?
3: It was physically painful. Like when I would be describing a scene, my skin would start to like burn a little bit. It would hurt Mm -hmm. as almost, almost as though I was becoming the character. And I had to often stop and take walks and visit with my nieces, nephews, and nibblings, and do-
2: What's a nibbling?
3: Nibbling is a a child of my sibling that is non-binary.
2: No way. Okay, I'm so out of it. I've never heard that before. Okay. I
3: have a nibbling who who is non-binary. And so I took breaks. Partially, that's part of the reason why I took 14 years to write this book. But it was also sort of, it, it became a conscious effort to- Say to myself, if I'm going to expect the reader to get through this, I'm going to have to give them something beautiful. I'm going to have to give them something deeply loving to sort of balance out the the hatred and the torture. So I decided early on that the love would be imbued as much as I possibly could into the book so that there was some sort of balance.
2: You speak so reverently about love. Tell me about the role that love has played in your life.
3: When I think about the fact that I'm here as a Black queer person, writing and reading and going to school and walking down the street and and all of these things, I can't help but feel grateful to all of my ancestors who endured because I must have been the outcome that they were hoping for, that endured whips and untold brutality and untold degradation to ensure that a me could exist. If that is not love, they didn't even know me. They dreamed that it might be. That is the ultimate form of love. And this was my attempt to testify on behalf of that love and to witness for it and to pay homage to it.
2: Beautiful, it's really beautiful. Who is like, what are some of the loving examples you have in your life now or that you have?
3: My husband.
2: Or that, you, uh, that you've that you seen actually like role modeled to you?
3: I have one of my best friends in the entire world. We've been best friends since third grade, Arlene Solavargas. One day when we were 15 years old in high school, I picked her up from school. We went to adjacent high schools. And so I would walk to her school, pick her up, and we walk home together. She stops me and she goes, Bobby, that's what my family calls me. You see that guy right there? And I'm looking at him. I'm like, yeah. She's like, that's going to be my husband. And I said, Ilky. That's my nickname for her. He's just an average looking guy. You're so beautiful. beautiful." (laughs) Lo and behold, they started dating shortly after that and have been together ever since. What? That's crazy. They have modeled for me what it means to be in love. She knew from the moment she saw him that that was her soulmate, her eternal love, the love of her life. And he felt the same way about her. And they have been together ever since three children, a marriage and three children later. They are still together. We are still friends. Her children consider me their uncle. I have never seen romance like that in my life. It, it, it is just absolutely beautiful. And then in my own family, the way my grandmother loved me was unbelievable. She died when I was very young. I was seven, and she told my mother, she said, Bobby's gonna miss me. And the truth of the matter is, to this day, I still cry when I think about her, on her birthday, on the day that she died. That kind of love is just all through my life. There have, of of course, been examples of people who did not love me, who did everything in their power to try to tell me that I was unlovable. But thanks to the glory of the love of people like Arlene and my grandmother and other members of my family, I withstood and I'm here.
2: You know, it's so funny. So talking to you, you're so like kind hearted and like peaceful seeming. And I don't know how to, I'm not explaining this very well, but (laughs) Like, you seem gentle to me, despite the brutality in the book. And then I saw the article in the Paris Review, Let It Burn, where you referenced your past article called, I don't give a, I'll just say blank, I don't give a blank about Justine Daymond, which got you in heaps of trouble, apparently. Which I'm sort of shocked to even hear because you seem like someone who would care about like, you know, not crushing a ladybug on the street, which I might be wrong. I've only known you for like, what, 20 minutes, but that's the impression I'm getting. It
3: is absolutely true that I even have a problem with killing a fly or a cockroach, like something about that bothers me. But what also bothers me just as much is injustice. I cannot stand to watch another video of a Black person being murdered on camera, and the murderer just as as though they were swatting a fly, Mm -hmm. that it utterly doesn't matter. That angers me to, uh, beyond my capacity to contain anger. I I don't want to be an angry person, but I can't help but be angry when I see what happens to Black women, what happens to Black queer people, what happens to Black people in general, what happens to anybody who's marginalized in a society angers me deeply. And so I write with the spirit of that when I'm when I'm writing pieces like, I don't give a blank about Justine Damon, which is really rhetorical because the truth is I do give a blank about Justine Damon, but I'm trying to let the society know you only care because it's a white woman, but if it was a Black mm-hmm. woman, you wouldn't care. So I'm trying to turn it on you and say, here's your mirror. This is what it's like when you disregard our lives. This is what it feels like. And it worked because so many white people got angry but did not see the connection, did not. Because Americans, it's so bizarre. Americans have an inability to self-reflect and always think we always think of ourselves as innocent. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wish Americans would wake up from that dreaming. I really do. Because America has the potential to be a nation that's transformative and that's a model for how the world should work. And it is not. And it has not been since the beginning because it's, it's a nation that's origins begin with genocide and enslavement and the degradation of women. So this is, this is unseemly. And I, I really want us to grow into what it actually means to be humane. We haven't earned the right to be called human beings yet because we're so cruel to one another.
2: Why? I totally agree about the cruelty. Like, I can't understand it. It baffles me how evil people can be. Especially, I mean, I feel things very deeply as I'm getting the sense that you feel things very deeply. And so when someone is hurt, it hurts me, you know, whether I know them or not or whatever. And the, I know this is just sounds like ridiculous, but just like the ability of somebody to go out and intentionally hurt somebody, especially based on their sexuality or their race or anything. I mean, it's just it like makes me cry. Anyway, it makes me sick to my stomach, honestly, is what it does, as it does to so many people. But anyway, it's hard to it's hard to process in a way. It
3: is, it is, it is very difficult. But truly, I think of myself as a non-violent person. Mm-hmm. I don't like engaging in violence. I was a bullied kid and had to fight because I had no choice, because I had to fight back to defend myself. But I didn't like the feeling of hurting somebody else, even Mm -hmm. though I felt justified because I was defending myself. I don't like it. But I also don't like to be pushed to the point at which I have to do that.
2: Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you've had those experiences in your life, and I'm glad that you've had people to pull you through and to show goodness to you. And so that you were able to channel all of it into art and now have it be sitting, you know, on my desk. It's amazing really. So truly congratulations. It's amazing. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there?
3: Yes. And particularly authors who are writing from sort of a marginalized existence is everything in the world Everything in this country is probably going to tell you that your endeavors are not necessary or that writing is a frivolous endeavor or that art is secondary to other concerns. You will have to fight past that and all the obstacles that the society is going to put in your way for you to, for example, take care of yourself because I had to work three part-time jobs in undergrad and two part-time jobs in graduate school and then still had to find the time to write as a, as a full-time worker in the, in the workforce.
2: And you graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Yes. That's like insane. You're a genius, but okay.
3: Thank you. But you must continue because writing is one of the most valuable professions, one of the most revered and necessary art forms in existence. It is the writer who pushes the society to be better. Other artists do that as well, so I don't want to take that away from them, but but the writer is, as James Baldwin said, here to disturb the peace, which is to say, disturb the status quo, so that people's lives can be easier, so that mechanisms that are here to oppress and to dehumanize are dismantled, and that we could look at each other in the face and say, even if I don't like you as a person, I don't agree with your religion or your whatever, I could still look at you in the face and say, you are a human being, so I respect you because you are here and you exist. Writers help us imagine those sorts of worlds and push us in that direction. So I tell the inspiring authors, don't give up no matter what. Even, listen, I'm gonna be 50 years old in April, and this is my first novel. And I could have given up because all of the lists are like 20 under 20 and 30 <laughs> under 30 and 40 <laughs> under 40 and make me feel as though my contribution as a 50-year-old doesn't matter. So keep going. Even if you're 89 when you publish it, be 89 and publish it. Keep going.
2: Okay. Can you can you please publish a list somewhere of 50 under 50 or 50? It has to be a little older though, so you can be included. You should publish like, yeah. Yeah. Like amazing 50-year-old authors or 50 and 40s or, you know, you have to, you start that, okay? So make that a thing too. Got it. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Speaking as someone in my 40s. Anyway, all right. Well, Robert, thank you so much. Thank you for your literary contribution and for taking the time to speak to me about your life and letting me pry into your past. (laughs)
3: Libby, this this was so fantastic because you asked questions that no one else asked me. So it made me think like about, myself as a person and what I want philosophically to happen in the world. So thank you so much for having me. And thank you for those wonderful questions.
2: You're so welcome. All right. Have a great day. You Okay. Bye-bye. Today's podcast has been sponsored by Under the Influence, a new podcast by author Joe Piazza.